What's going on, Dan? Uh, Dave, you know, I'm still recovering from Tobias Harris's one-handed dunk over Bismack Biombo, officially murdering my brand for the rest of time. So, <laughs> so, <yeah. laughs> so in case in case anyone listening is not aware, do you wanna do you wanna take take yeah. the context? Tell us no. the context. Yeah, I got it. And I'm gonna be defending a lot of things on this pod today, probably. Uh thanks for having me on, Dave. Always love your stuff that you write for the site, that all the podcasts you do, it's always great stuff. Um but yeah, I had noticed for a long time that Tobias almost always dunked with two hands. So I thought it'd be fun to look at just how long has he done that? How often does it happen? It was pretty much like over about 160 dunks over three years, he dunked 16 or 17 times with one hand, which isn't very much, especially for a player of his size. So I wrote all about it. Why doesn't Tobias dunk with one hand? Kind of representative of how he, of how his shortcomings that most fans already feel about him. And then he decides this week to just go off, not only playing great, making quicker decisions, hitting catch and shoot threes, doing all the things we want from him. He dunks with his one hand three times, including a poster on Bismack Biombo, to which I was tagged on Twitter to no end for that that dunk. Like the most interaction I've gotten on the site in a while, basically just from Tobias dunking on Bismack Biombo. So but you know, I'm glad. I'm glad that Tobias is making me look stupid. The Sixers are playing really well and he's honestly looks like an all-star right now. He he is playing like an all-star, especially with um I think he's averaging like a steal and a half and a block and a half per game. Mm-hmm. He, he's shooting almost fifty percent from three on like five attempts, which is something he's not been as willing to do. So gotta give Doc Rivers some credit and uh, maybe the system, maybe the, the shooters on the floor with him. But yeah, that's that's kind of funny. I know people always tag Kevin O'Connor when like Ben Simmons hits a shot with his left hand <laughs> or, or doesn't. And um so maybe you can get that going, even if it's a, a infamous association. Yeah, to- Toby, if you read my article, if you're listening to this pod, just know I am very glad that you are making me look stupid right now. Uh, Keep doing it. If I had to guess, I would say someone showed him the article, but he's not going to listen to this pod. Um, <laughs> now, let me ask you this. When you were noticing that and doing your homework for that piece, did you think it was something that was like, an an aesthetic or a functional, like what was your takeaway? Did you think it's a problem that he wasn't dunking with one hand? Was that holding him back as a player or as a finisher? So, I mean, there's occasional things like that with that, with dunking of one hand that he didn't do it very much. It probably holds him back at times. I mean, it's just like, that's a very specific thing for me to nitpick, which is kind of the impetus of the article. But the main point is Tobias isn't a very athletic finisher, usually around the rim and like watching him, it's just before like this last week, everything kind of moved slowly. We'd all just, always describe it. It looks like he's thinking way too much. And that was just kind of another part of it is that Tobias doesn't do the thing that you expect from these tall shot creating forwards who can like athletically attack the rim. I think I compared him to like a guy of the guy like Jason Tatum, which I know six or chance don't hear anything about Tatum, but like you don't see those one handed tomahawks usually from Toby that you see from guys like that or, the guys who usually have a ton of two-handed dunks are rolling centers, as like I compare him to Maxi Kleber, who basically all he, all his dunks last year were just ca- catching lobs from Luca, where he could just jump up and flush it with two hands. Which it, it's basically just the idea that Tobias, despite having quote unquote the archetype of a shot creating wing, really did not provide the same aesthetics or rim finishing like athleticism that most of those wings do. But again, he has proven me wrong the last week. Yeah. He, I would say upon acquiring him via trade, the cost and assets aside, I felt we were getting uh, a much closer facsimile to this player we've seen thus far this year. Uh, And we, we just didn't, but I never expected him to be very athletic. I, you know, I just mm-hmm. kind of thought he was a better shooter who could target a mismatch. And if he's your stretch four or your sometimes your backup or your three and backup rosters, then that's great. Uh, well, he, yeah, you know, I agree with that. I'm just saying. Well, my my bigger point is that just, and I don't think anyone thinks of to, as of Tobias as a dynamic athlete. But if you're not watching him every night, you probably don't if you haven't watched him every night for like the last year and a half, you probably didn't think of him as like, Oh, he's not very jumpy like at all, which again changed in the past week. But 
you know, it's something that when he was on the Clippers, I didn't know like, oh, Tobias, like he can kind of look like this. And you may, maybe he didn't look like this as so much as the Clippers because that was his, pretty much his best half season of play up to that point. But yeah, that was kind of the overall feeling behind me. Do you have, do you have a sense? I know, uh, and Sean Kennedy just wrote, like it's been discussed ad nauseum that he's making quicker decisions. Do you have any sense beyond that sort of catchphrase that's been used to describe why he's playing better? Like, what have you seen? Is it related to the team around him? Is it something he's doing differently? Is are just shots going in that weren't? Why is Kobe good lately? Well, he's making all those catch and shoot threes, and it's you know it's all tied together. He's making more shots because instead of catching the ball and holding it, he's been much more like if he has any space from three, he's firing, which is what they've always wanted Tobias to do, which he's just been reluctant to at sometimes. Uh, it's been pointed out that he's done a little better job defensively, staying in front of guys which is true. And if you can keep them in front of them, he's a very strong guy. That's one thing that's underrated about Tobias is how strong he is. Like I I talked about, he doesn't really soar above people for those dunks usually, but he can kind of send them back a little bit with his chest because he just, he does have a really strong upper body that he can bang off of other big dudes in the post if he gets in there. So he looks a tiny bit top heavy sometimes, isn't he? Like, yeah, that's a good way to describe it. Thin legs. Yeah, he's done fine with it this year, though. Um, yeah, I mean, this might be a boring answer. I really do think it is mostly that, like, instead of Tobias taking 10 dribbles down to the last second of the shot clock and taking a 12-foot fadeaway, it's more just Tobias catch and shoot three or Tobias a couple dribbles and a shot, which is, or a couple dribbles and a dunk, apparently, which are all much better options. Well, if he's if he's now taking these tomahawk jams, and maybe we could Photoshop your face on a Biombo for motivating him, if, if that's my profile if, picture, if that's what's going to happen, your next article should be what? What would you next love to inspire him to do? You're saying that like I need to pick on something else of his, and like I, I think maybe you have an opportunity here that's unique. Should you? I should, should tell we, him. Like I should we'd tell love him to get his free throws up. He needs to become a great pick and roll passer. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I, Michael, I'm Michael, ideas <laughs> Michael Connor wrote a piece about how he doesn't draw fouls and it didn't really happen yeah. for him. Yeah. Or maybe you can be meaner. <laughs> I don't want to be the mean. I, I'm so happy for Tobias right now. I'm, I don't want to be the mean guy. I try. I was not trying to be mean with that article. I was trying to point something out about him. All right. Let me be mean then. This is uh this is my pod. When I read your piece and I saw the best dunk of Toby's career. I mean, the one on Montrez Harrell last year, obviously in this one, both like slashing through the lane and finishing with the right. Mm-hmm. It made me think um, that was also maybe the best dunk of Ben Simmons career. Like has, does, why doesn't Ben Simmons, who's a tremendous athlete, not posterize people routinely? Well, it probably has a lot to do with like, I mean, we all know of Ben's shooting struggles and because probably some of that lack of super great with the ball in his hand, hand-eye coordination to score. It's part of the reason why he doesn't have a great post-up game is that he does not always seem comfortable trying to score the basketball. Mm-hmm. And probably that has something to do with it. Uh, I mean, it is also harder. Like It's why, why Giannis is so special that everyone's backing up on him, but he can still dunk through them. Like Ben's an incredible athlete, but he's not Giannis. That, so that's part of it. Like you have to be an absurd athlete when ever every team knows you just want to get straight to the rim for a dunk or a layup to still be able to do. And Ben can still score, but not at that same level. Um, but you but just yeah. think, even with all that said, that at this point he'd have like you know a, a ten minute montage of posterizing people. He does you have know, maybe transition. Time. It just doesn't happen though. He he'll go in there, he'll swoop, and then he'll shoot like a skyhook. Yeah, the hook shots can, uh, not a fan of, super big fan of the hook shots, but I do remember he had that one where he basically, like, uh, didn't he, like, jam it on Laurie Markkinen's head in transition last year? I mean, yeah, I'm sure that there are, there's going to be exceptions, and maybe someone will send me a couple, but I'm just, as someone who's watched his whole career now, it feels like a weird lap, a a weird absence for someone who's, like, when we think of Toby, it's like, I get why maybe he's not posterizing people. But Ben, it's like, I don't really get it. I, He's often the best athlete on the court. Yeah, I mean, again, I would just go back to 
it's the same reason he has trouble scoring generally, why he doesn't have a great post-up game, why he has he won't shoot from that far out, because he doesn't really feel he's never really developed a ton of in-game skill and or craft for scoring the basketball. And that probably has to go with dunking because part of it is knowing how to get to the rim, knowing how to transition, like get that synergy between like gathering the ball and rising up. I mean, Ben can finish lobs just fine because he's, I mean, he's, we've seen he's a freak athlete, but probably that's just some of it. The whole gathering from rim, like gathering off a dribble and then going up. It's just sometimes it's a lot of like developing your scoring and then has never been a great scorer. Do you feel that he has improved significantly off on offense since he's come into the league? I think Spike Gaskin just wrote that he has not improved significantly. I mean, therefore trade him quick. Uh, I mean, probably not, but uh, he, he hasn't really made that big of improvements. I think he still makes subtle improvements every year. The pro- And I'm not going to like describe them because I think there are probably some improvements that we just as viewers probably can't see the coach. I'm sure the coaching staff, like, cause I, I feel like Ben still just helps you win in general. And there are good things he does that probably the coaching staff sees that even us as viewers are not noticing. He just, I mean, he does draw a ton of attention and while not being the best passer in the world, he is probably one of the 15 to 20 best passers in the world right now. And even if it's not like great passing craft all the time, just the fact that he is that tall, that fast, that strong, he puts pressure on the defense by getting in the paint. And even if he is not a great scorer around the rim, just his presence there will cause the defense to react, which opens up all kinds of passing lanes. And I, he's probably gotten better at hitting those guys, hitting guys where they want the ball. You know, that's something LeBron always talked about, asking asking guys where do they like to catch the ball. Mm-hmm. So he knows how to throw passes. I'm sure Ben's probably done some of that. And we can't see that. And that's probably why some guys have like shooting more of him. Him and Joel have tried running that snug pick and roll some more. I think they've gotten a tiny bit better at that, although still some mixed results there. Um, so yeah, I can't, it's definitely not as much improvement as you want, but I wouldn't say he hasn't like improved at all. Just not as much as you would hope for a guy who's been a two time all-star now. He he's averaging 32 minutes. He has yet to have a night off given his injury history. Would you, do some type of load management, if any, with Ben? Yeah, I'd be fine with some. Like, not He doesn't need as much as Joel does because, obvious, of Joel's injury history is so, you know, shaky. Um, the interesting thing to me with that is, would you rest Joel and Ben on the same night or only have one of them out for night? Because the theory would be that if you keep one of them in, it gives you a better chance of winning. Obviously, Joel probably gives you the best chance of winning. It's his presence that really determines how good the Sixers are going to be, but like the idea behind resting both of them is that you're getting rest out of the way for both of them and just not like, not like uh, splitting the difference. Whereas the, like there's a chance you could lose all the games where you rest either Ben or Joel, but, and that just, you keep adding on to the total number of games you're losing in that sense. Whereas resting them both at the same time, it's like killing two birds with one stone, just, we're going to get this loss out of the way, but we get a rest game in for both of them, and then they can both come back. And it's like fewer games you have to potentially sacrifice. Yeah, I like that question a lot. I think it's probably, for me, it would be context-based. If, yeah. if it's one of those times where we're going down to Miami and we're playing two games there against them, like we, like we just saw the Bucks do, I, and I played to win the first night, I might bench them. I might rest them both the next night. Um, but if we were going to play the Hornets... And I think I'm going to be a Vegas favorite if I play either Joel or Ben, then I might rest one in that scenario. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, like Ben, what with Joel, it's very known, well known what his injury history is and probably what impact it's had on his feet, on his conditioning, all that kinds of stuff. So that's probably an easier one to say. Whereas Ben, like it's tough to tell what Ben's injuries have done to him. Cause some of them have just been like a, what was it? I mean, the back the back was really scary. The so, back, Brett Brown said like he was vomiting from the pain. Yeah, still the the injury, the the medical team allowing him to play that game is still maybe the most furious I've ever been with the medical staff, after, even at, which is a lot saying for the Sixers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I, I'm not sure about Ben. Like he, he'll definitely get some games to rest, probably not as much as Embiid, and 
Yeah, I guess it just comes down to me then, how do you want to mix it up with him and Joel? Because those are your two main guys and two guys you want to wrestle. The one thing we can say about Toby is he will not take games off. Toby plays every night. Toby is an Iron Man. Toby appeared to like roll his ankle, and he just kind of walked it off, breathed what, through it. What about Game Four of the Celtics sweep last year? Oh, don't, don't don't go there. I can't. I can't. He I should mean, never have been allowed back. That was such an obvious concussion. I mean, yeah. I'm not. I'm not saying again. Not praising the Sixers for laying back. I'm just saying, kind of speaks to Tobias's uh, strength that you can do how you can go through that and get back out on the court. Carson Wentz wanted to come back in that Seattle game so badly, but the Eagles just didn't let him do it. You know? Yeah. We're not, I don't want to talk about Carson Wentz right now. (laughs) Well, well, we, we could talk about the Eagles because there was a process scandal last night. Why don't we go there? Do you just want me to start ranting on this right now? I'll stop you after a certain point if it gets there, and, and I'll, fo- I'll come up with a follow-up question, but start ranting. Okay, so if anyone out there is not an NFL fan or does not know what happened last night, the Eagles played the Washington football team last night, and going into the fourth quarter, down three, now the Eagles are mathematically eliminated from the playoffs. They can't, no, a win cannot help them. But the game determines that if they won, the Giants at 6-10 and 10 would make the playoffs. If they lost, Washington at 7-9 and nine would make the playoffs. The Eagles decided that it would be better. I mean, Doug Peterson denies it, but he, we know what it was. He decides to put in Nate Sudfeld instead of Jalen Suggs. Nate Sudfeld goes out there, throws a terrible interception. Wait, wait, at what point in the game? This is in the fourth quarter. Right, they're down by like three. Yeah, and then it, it, it became down by six early in the fourth, so still from one possession, but... <sighs> eminently, eminently winnable game, uh, which was surprising because they healthy scratched... And a lot of people, or you know, maybe everyone's banged up, but they yes. scratched a lot of important players, and the line was creeping up there. I don't know if it was four and a half or six, so it looked like Washington would have an easy time winning this. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, Hertz is playing so well, and it's like I well, mean, he was seven of he win. was seven of twenty for like a less than a hundred passing yards. Jalen Hurts was not playing that well. They were just not, neither team was good. No teams in the NFC East are good. Nate Sudfeld goes in there, basically tanks the game. The Eagles even jump offside. Ty McGill Jr. T.Y. McGill Jr. jumps offsides on an obvious fourth down where the Washington just wanted to draw them offsides. It was great. I love you, T.Y. But then everyone online gets mad at the Eagles for doing what was best for their long-term future. There was no benefit to the Eagles winning that game. None for them personally. Now, the Eagles players are the only ones who have a right to be upset about that. If Jalen Hurts is upset that he got pulled when his coach told him he would let him finish or try to win the game, he can be mad. If some of the Eagles players are mad that they kind of threw the game there at the end, that's fine. The e- Anyone associated or working for the Eagles, whether as a player or as a staffer, they can be upset. They have that right. Everyone else needs to shut up. If you are not rooting for the Eagles, the Giants are complaining. You went 6-10, and ten, and one of your losses was to this bad, bad Eagles team. Wait, wait. If you wanted to make the playoffs, can the Giants to the Eagles. Can the Giants players feel upset if the Eagles players can? No, because you know why? You don't lose to the Eagles. This is a bad team. They went four, eleven, and one, and they and they went one and seven in the last half of the year. They lost to both Giants and Washington. But in the first half of the year, the Eagles went three, four, and one. One of their wins was against this Giants team. They lost to Washington. If the Giants wanted to make the playoffs, don't go six and ten and lose to this bad Eagles team. Stop complaining that your crappy season doesn't get to end by getting blown out by Tampa Bay. At least Washington had the decency to beat the Eagles in the first half of the season. Instead, you are complaining the fact the Eagles did what was best for them, and everyone else trashing them, saying they ruined the integrity of the game. If it was your team in this position, you would have all rooted for the exact same thing. You all would have asked for the for your team to throw the game and get a better draft pick. This is the difference between the Eagles taking shaky offensive lineman or defensive lineman X and hoping he's good, between getting a great wide receiver in Jamar Chase or Devontae Smith, most likely. That is so much better for them. This is such... The Eagles, it was the difference between the sixth draft pick and the ninth draft pick. That's that's pretty important. A top six pick is great, especially after this bad year the Eagles had. If the Eagles players want to be upset, that is fine. Everyone else needs to be quiet. 
you are all being hypocrites by the fact that the Eagles properly executed what was best for their long-term future. Where were all these haters when the Jets and Jaguars went 1-25 for 14 weeks? All right, let me, let me get my own rant in real quick because I grew up a Jets fan, and I, I don't think that the Jets did nearly enough to tank this season. Thank you. <laughs> and so I, I use them too. They, they were terrible all year, but when they went into that Rams game and all of a sudden it was close, I keep thinking – Now's the time you take out Sam Darnold and put in your fourth-round rookie, Joe Morgan, and see what he's got. Now's the time you take out, I don't know, Frank Gore and Rashad Perriman and Jamison Crowder and take out all these vets who you don't know if they'll be here next year. And just take a look at your taxi squad, your practice squad. This is the perfect time because the difference between the first and the second pick this year appears to be huge. So well, I, I, I mean, I think Justin Fields is a boss, so I think you're still fine ultimately if you take him. But, you know, keep going, keep going. So I was very, very jealous that the Eagles were so diligent and so shameless. And I enjoyed this the little rant that people were going. I was just seeing Larry Tynes, the field goal kicker for the Super Bowl Giants, who was saying, we took on the 15-0 and Patriots and we played them in the last game of the year, and we tried our best. We didn't win, but it gave us confidence going into the playoffs. So this is terrible. And I'm thinking, dude, you're locked into the playoffs in a year. Exactly. Super Bowl. What if you were eliminated and you can go from nine to six? You should have done that. But you were in it, in it to win it. The Eagles had nothing to gain as a franchise from winning that game. And if you're saying like, oh, I may, again, maybe the players could feel some sort of pride. Do you think any Eagles fan would feel more proud of this team if they finished 5-10-1 instead of 4-11-1? No. I do, I do think there are some Eagles fans, just like I think there are some Sixers fans who just don't like to see it. They're purists. Maybe we can make fun of them for being a little old. Those are the same people who, if they had been the GM of the Sixers in 2014, they would have gotten Dante Exum instead of Joel Embiid. Right. It's the same people. They wanted Michael Carter-Williams long long haul. If all these Giants fans, I know not all of them are Knicks fans, but there are definitely some Giants and Knicks fans. Can you explain, Can you? where was this energy when the Knicks, on the last game of the season two years ago, played John Jenkins and Kadeem Allen a combined 57 minutes in a failed pursuit of Zion Williamson. Where was this? Because, I mean, heck, the Jaguars save for 2017 have been basically doing the same thing for like five years. It's just, I don't understand how it's, if this had happened, like someone pointed out, if this had happened at 1 p.m. instead of uh, 8 p.m., everyone would have been fine with it. No one would have cared. If the Eagles had just decided we're going to start Nate Sudfeld this week instead of playing Jalen Hurts the first three quarters, no one would have cared. <laughs> but you, everyone gets so worked up. The fact, like, or Mike Glennon started five weeks for the Jaguars and went 0-5 very easily. What do we think that was? But no, because the Eagles had to do it with the precious Giants playoff hopes on the line, a horrible team in themselves, the Eagles are now these big villains when... <sighs> I just... No, they did it right. They did it right. But you're probably preaching to the choir. I bet a lot of our listeners are Eagles fans and like tanking. So, um, We're, we're going to get either a great receiver or Justin Fields will inexplicably fall to six and it'll be great either way. Oh, if the Jets let that happen, I, yeah. I I'm just going to become an Eagles yeah. fan for good. Yeah, I'll, pr- I'll pray for you, my friend. If, they, if, if the Jets do not take Justin Fields, I will pray for you, my friend. All right, let me ask you, let's go back to Sixers hoops for now. Let me ask you about Joel's passing. Um, mm-hmm. He's averaging less assists than he has in the last several years, his lowest assist average since his rookie year. But he's gotten a lot of praise for his improved passing. Is his passing improved? Is it just the spacing around him makes it appear that way? Or is it not improved? It's improved, definitely. And the thing with assists are, assists are not a good way to measure passing. Like, it's, so I just, I was reading, um, it was the best book I've read this year, because I just read it at the end of 2020, uh, Thinking Basketball by Ben Taylor. Just such a great book. Highly recommend to anyone who wants to understand the game better. Assists, because it relies so much on what your teammates then do with the ball as you pass it to them. It's, I'm trying to think of a good way to describe it. It's like if in baseball, 
runs were valued more than RBIs. Like the result is not as of uh, just the result is very that's often out of control, out of your own control. Whereas you can control the process, kind of like going back to that. And Embiid just measuring his assist really doesn't measure the shots he's creating for his teammates with how much attention he draws. With I mean, generally when he's in the post, teams freak out. How much how much the other teams move towards him and it opens up not like say he gets double in the post, he kicks out to Seth Curry, who then has someone sprints him and he whips it to Tobias who hits a three. Like right now there's this there's this great uh clip. I think it's of the new prospect Jalen Suggs. Mm-hmm. He throws this gorgeous full court dime to I guy tweeted it. Yeah. The, guy who blows the layup. So we we shouldn't judge him based on his assists. So maybe it's not fair to judge anyone solely based on assists. Yeah, you should. If you should never judge a player based on raw box score stats. But basically, what I was saying there is, if Seth then swings at him, it's a good pass by Seth, but he did not create that shot. Mm-hmm. Shot creation is more important than your raw assist numbers. Joel creates the shot by having the gravity and being able to see the double team and then kicking it out. There was one play in the Knicks game where Joel like was trying to skip it to Tobias, but him and so this was something my high school coach was always big on is that you can't you shouldn't line up like laterally on the same like path is your teammate you want to be at angle different angles so because if you're both lined up kind of on top of each other like ben and toby were in this instance with toby in the corner and ben on the block it kind of allows a defender to guard two because he can't just go horizontally very easily but so in joel i remember back then was trying to tell he was like even in that same game trying to tell ben hey come step forward he was like motioning to him so i can skip this to toby mm. and ben did and then they kind of like I think a few games later, the same thing happened. Ben did step forward, and then he found Toby. I think Joel has made a lot of progress in terms of knowing when to skip and just understanding when, what he kind of has to do. He still needs to get better at it, but yeah, shot creation is much more important than assists. Someone smarter than me with better math skills could definitely track how many shots Joel's creating per 100. I would definitely wager it's gone up. But the basic idea, yeah, basically like, I do not care at all what his raw assist numbers are. They're not going to indicate how good of a passer is, how good of a player he is. As most mo- raw stats are not how good of a player you are. They're merely just counting up the total of processes that happen on the co- processes that happen on the court. So well, I, I don't evaluate by those. Maybe this, maybe this is to your point and worth dismissing. But every year his turnovers have gone down. Da- turnovers per game per forty eight have gone down, mm-hmm. or per game per game have gone down. Uh, started at 3.8 in the 31 games he played as a quote-unquote rookie, and now they're currently at 2.8. So there has been some steady progression there, it at least appears. Mm-hmm. Yeah, turnovers, like, it would sound counterintuitive what I just said. I mean, assists are the big one because it depends on something else, and turnovers can sometimes depend on... It's probably, like, raw turnovers per game are a little more accurate than raw assists per game, or per 100 for that matter, but... Yeah, I, I, Joel's basically in general is what I'm saying is that I do th- believe you that Joel has gotten better as a passer. I would agree with that sentiment. And yeah, he does just not only just fewer bad passes out of the post, but I think Joel, when he was younger, more often tried to dribble through traffic when he really like, I mean, just any guy at that height with who isn't like super agile, like if your name's not Kevin Durant, it's going to be very hard to dribble through traffic like he does without losing the ball. I think he's tried to do that less to try and preserve possessions, which I think has been nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so let me read you. I looked up some a little bit about the shooting profile. Um, I had on, as a guest, Dan Valley of Bleacher Report, and we talked a little bit about the what might this marriage between Daryl Morey and, and Doc Rivers look like. Um, and I know, you know, Daryl is known for being analytics heavy and, and innovative and doc, uh, has clashed at times over that in Boston and with the Clippers or, you know, for failing to make adjustments that maybe management wanted him to make from a data perspective. Uh, and he's got a lot of clout. He's won a championship. He's had a ton of success. So you wonder how excited is he going to be to be getting these, I don't know, like spreadsheets on an airplane to go over and implement. And I asked Dan about that and he said, I don't know. It's possible. It's an awkward fit. We'll probably know over the first 20 games from the team's shooting profile, if they're on the same page. So we're nowhere near 20 yet, but the Sixers do have the best record in the league. I didn't expect that. Did you? 
I didn't expect it, but I I just do like to point out with that one, and I'm very happy with how the Sixers have played this far. The Sixers did start five and one last year, and I don't think they have played a particularly challenging schedule to this point. No, the two main points I make. Uh, I mean, they're playing the Hornets for a second time tonight, and as much as I like watching the Hornets, Lamelo Ball's one. I love Lamelo Ball. I think. Terry Rozier shooting out of his mind. PJ Washington's fun. I mean, that's not a great team they're playing. So I, I wouldn't go out. Of, but yeah, the Sixers have clearly been a good team to start the season. Yes. All right. So last year's team ranked fifth in all mid-range attempts per cleaning the glass. Now they are down to 13th. So they're taking less frequent mid-range shots. On long twos, they went from 10th overall down to 12th. So they're still taking... Uh, higher than average amount of long twos. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure exactly who's responsible. My guess would be Joel and maybe Seth. Well, Art, to- Toby, Toby takes those elbow jumpers. Mm-hmm. Um, corner threes is encouraging. We went from 21st in the league to now ninth on corner threes. So a pretty big jump there. A lot of that is also Tobias because he started shooting more as is Danny Green and Seth Curry, but yeah. And let's see. All... All threes were still about the same. We went up from 33% of our shots being all a three-pointer last year to 35%. Although, as you might expect, the league is taking a little bit more threes also, so our rank didn't improve. So it's it's improved from last year, but it's still a pretty far cry from what you would expect for, of a Daryl Morey team um, to rank 21st in three-point attempts. Do you think that's something that he would like to see go way up? Daryl's not the point. Analytics is not just a simple like shoot more threes and therefore you win. If anything, the best thing that the best thing in basketball is getting to the rim. And they have a guy who does that very well in Joel Embiid, which, you know, the problem with post ups is that some guys, they don't end up being at rim shots. And Joel certainly will take his face up jumpers and fadeaways out of the post. But Joel can also do like that one spin movie he had on Nikola Vucevic, which is just nasty. Like he can do that to get all the way to the rim. I hate to say this, but I think he traveled twice on that move, as beautiful as it was. Who cares? It's you just gonna <laughs> embrace. <laughs> he gets that call, though. He gets that call. No, but Joel, like Joel, can get to the rim and finish and draw fouls like crazy. Which drawing fouls and getting to the rim are like steps one and two in having a good, like efficient offense, and he does that very well. They, yeah, and I don't. If they're not gonna like. I mean, they have two guys on the team who you wouldn't recommend shooting three-pointers in their starting lineup because Ben Simmons, I mean, I mean, we want him to shoot threes, but he's not a good shooter. We know this by looking at his free-throw numbers. And Joel Embiid, while not an uh, inept, inept shooter from behind the line, is not a great one. Isn't so, Ben leading the league in three-point field goal percentage? You know, you know why that doesn't matter. He's <laughs> um, one for one. <laughs> and, but um, Seth and Danny Green are really the only guys you would say probably shot option number one for them is a three, maybe Tobias, or unless he can get all the way to the rim where he, mm-hmm. sometimes. But you know, so you have like two guys who should definitely be looking for catch and shoot threes, and one who will occasionally look for them in Tobias. So I don't think it's like shocking that they're not shooting a ton of threes as long as they're. Making them and more important than how many threes they shoot or how well they make them, like the accuracy on their shots, is just the respect they get from defenses. Because just having Danny Green, Seth Curry, and Tobias Harris out there, teams are closing out hard to them, which allows them into the paint, which makes them draws them away from Ben and Joel inside, which opens up everything. Teams last year did not care if Al Horford shot a three, and they generally like they were pretty like you know meh as to what whether josh richardson shot a three so they weren't closing hard out closing out hard on them they were helping off them without much fear so the idea that basically just by having these guys who are more respected as three-point shooters it just opens up what already was their best offense which is joel Embiid inside so you know i'm not too worried about i don't even know if that's going to change that much the three-point frequency you said still being the just barely in the bottom third of the league and i I don't know if it has to as long as Joel keeps doing what he's doing and teams keep respecting the three shooters they usually have out there in Tobias Harris, Seth Curry, and Danny Green. Right. All right. So, all right, I'm going to give you three choices. We'll get to all three, but we'll, you pick one first. The The landscape of the East, your current James Harden take, or Steph Curry drop 62, and let's talk about that. I mean, landscape me, Curry me, Harden. Me and you were going back on Harden and Curry last night, so we can kind of 
combine those into one, I think. I think All it's right. possible. Let's start with Curry then. Okay. So Steph had six, 62 points last night. Uh, probably everyone saw it. I was busy watching Northwestern men's basketball getting killed by Michigan, unfortunately, and then having to defend the Eagles for an entire hour last night. So I didn't get to watch it live, but I heard all about it. Woke up at 8 a.m. this morning and watched the whole thing, and it was fantastic just watching Steph do that. Steph has long been – like, I, I was an NBA fan growing up, but I really I really think I only became a true diehard when Steph started exploding in 2016. That this That's when it went from, oh, yeah, I'll watch an NBA game every now and then to I want to watch every NBA game I can. Was I mean, I know I'm biased. I just love Steph so much. But – it was just so great to see, like, after... So I've had two takes in this past week where I to, I was so mad at people for trashing on them just because it had a rough outing. It was Justin Fields who, for a week, I defended saying that Justin Fields is still awesome. Northwestern has just had a great pass defense that made him look bad for one game. And then Justin Fields goes out and kills Clemson. Yeah. And then for a week, I said, Steph Curry is not... Steph Curry is fine. I mean, he's having a rough season, but it's more about the teammates around him. And you shouldn't use this season of Steph Curry to slander would have has been an incredible career in the last five years from him. And Steph goes out and does that last night. So I'm feeling pretty good right now. And I think Steph is still just incredible in all facets of the game. Well, I'm not sure it's a, it's a big step to take a victory lap on saying Steph is still good. But well, Marty, it's in comparison to everyone who was saying he was done, I, I don't look stupid. Marty, Marty Teller, who's a friend of Liberty ballers tagged Daryl Morey and said, now he would be the real bullseye. And I'm guessing what he meant was Steph would be better to acquire than James Harden. I'm not sure if he meant Steph is better um, or if Steph would be somehow cheaper. But my guess would be that neither. He, I would say that he thinks Steph is better, but he would not be cheaper. Um, my, my guess, my read on this Harden thing is that the market has not been as hot as you would expect for someone as good. Maybe there's some off-the-court concerns or style of play concerns but if Steph hit the market it would it would heat up very quickly and teams would offer more than they have for James do you think that's fair do you think that's accurate in terms of their market value and do you think uh, Curry's better than Harden and do you think the Sixers would be better off with Curry than Harden even if it meant a couple extra assets so that's a lot of questions to take in but yeah. uh, so Just the first thing is Sixers are not trading for Steph Curry because the Warriors are not trading Steph Curry. No, he, I think it was just a hypothetical. Yeah, I know. I'm just saying. I'm just pointing out that to any Sixers fans getting ideas out there, the Warriors are not trading him, so that's not happening. So theoretically, then the price would have to be higher because whereas there is a, th- a price where you could get Harden, there is no price where you could get Curry. Right. Probably. Right. Um, but in ter- like we were, so we were having this debate and. I agree in terms – I've gone through this debate a lot before I've explained – the debate? So basically, Harden is a better floor raiser. He – you can put four guys who aren't that good around him and you're still going to have like a top 10 offense in the NBA because he can handle so much volume, so much load, so much of a night-to-night pounding. It's, it's one of the most underrated things about Harden by the general public is how strong he is. That dude is – I think you've heard other NBA players talk about this. Say, you play Harden for a night, you're going to be sore the next game because he is just a strong guy charging into you time and time again so that is definitely part of it in that Harden Harden can take bad teams and make them really good still which is incredible and I think he does that better than Steph and even though I think this team is worse the team around Steph right now say for Draymond Green if he plays like he did last night because Draymond was really good last night too that that's a very bad team around Steph right now Wiggins and Wiggins and Oubre have been borderline unwatchable so far so I, I do th- understand the, the feeling that Steph can't raise much, which is partly due to his size, due to not being able to bear as much load, n- and partially just due to the way Golden State does not just want to run a ton of pick and rolls and isolations with them. It's not what Steve Kerr prefers. But I ultimately, like in terms of historical value and who I would deem as better, value like ceiling raising more. And Harden's ISO heavy, it's usually through him offensive style kind of limits your overall ceiling placing good players around him. Like is a reason Chris Paul did not look very good next to Harden generally like him. I mean, from a statistical sense, just how we were watching Chris Paul, there's a reason he was easily gotten in that trade. So, so your take essentially is 
Curry's better because he raises your ceiling. Harden has better qualities, but he's not better overall for you because he raises your floor. Yeah, I mean, there's different levels. And, like, the Warriors are a very interesting case of this because, like, Draymond Green is the ultimate example of he cannot, as you saw last year of last year's Warriors team, he cannot raise your floor almost at all because he does not provide, like, scoring or an offensive baseline through him, his own actions. Mm-hmm. Draymond's whole thing is ceiling raising, which is you put other good players around Draymond and he makes them infinitely better because of all the connecting things he does, which is why Draymond's a great player. I'm, now, I'm not saying Draymond's better than Harden. I'm not saying that, but... Um, but it's like that same idea that I ultimately, if it's two players of kind of like accomplishments, I value more what Steph does because his shooting like kind of scales better towards great teams and his off how he can just he they're like it's good to vary the paths in which you score and Curry can do that because he's such a dynamic off ball mover creates so much havoc in the court basically. And if you look back at those three Golden State teams, they were always good. But like, if you took Curry off the court, they were just kind of like normal good by most like most of their ratings. Like they were still a good team, but they weren't killing teams. But whenever you put Curry back on the court, they started just absolutely destroying teams. Whereas you can't couldn't say that the same for like Durant or Clay specifically. Usually, so okay. So let's let's hone in on Harden. Then would you okay. trade for James Harden if you were the Sixers? And where do you see him landing most likely at this point? I am still, well, I don't think it's dumb for anyone to say they want to keep Ben Simmons over James Harden, which is pretty much what we all know the trade would be probably Ben Simmons plus Ben Simmons for James Harden with the haggling for the assets in between. Um, I, I would still do it if I'm the Sixers because I think Harden is better and I, I mean, Harden and Embiid, I think Dan wrote a whole article about it after me and hit Dan Volpone, that is, after we had a discussion about it on Twitter. Having, like, two MVP candidates in one yes. lineup. Yeah, that Joel Embiid and James Harden, like, if Joel plays like this, he might finish top five in MVP voting. James Harden's almost always top five in MVP voting. Usually when you have two of, two of the be- very best players in the league, you're very, very good. So I'm ultimately okay with the trade but again i don't think it's stupid to say you want to keep ben because of all the great things he does especially on defense although offense probably ultimately is more valuable it's more sticky year to year than and than the defenses in the nba so i i would say that's a part of it but also but like so then you asked um where do i think harden ends up that is such a tough question i mean the sixers were the runaway favorites for a while but now it's getting different because so the Nets lost to the Wizards last night, which is concerning a little bit. I still ultimately think they're fine, but you know, if the Nets say the Nets end up like 20 and 10, 30 games in, which is good, but not great, you could see them look into it more, like be more willing to sacrifice stuff. A big one that's been getting pushed is the Raptors, because the Raptors still have a top five defense in the NBA right now. They just can't score at all. So if there's one thing James Harden will do, it'll boost your offense. So Yeah, to me a a Siakam package should have always been one of the highest likelihood packages. And if not, they have a, was it Zach Lowe who suggested that they might even value Anunoby more than they would Siakam. You want to try I think it's Ananobi. Ananobi. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I, but I, like I, a package between OG and Van Fleet, maybe when are they allowed to trade him? Um, I, I think they still have to wait a little bit longer, but I think it's they can still trade him before the deadline. Um, I would value Ananobi higher than Siakam at the you moment. Would. Well, Siakam is great, but and I love how my biggest defense of Siakam is that he, on defense, hit, like the way they play where they're helping one pass away all the time and giving up a ton of threes, he helps that a lot because he is such a fast defensive player. He closes out like crazy. The amount of effort he expends is just so admirable. So... I still think Siakam's really good in the end, but like we saw in the playoffs, he cannot be your number one scoring option. Kyle Lowry had to take that role right back from him because he still lacks some of the craft, some of the really good passing. Just the They could put Jalen Brown on him, who's a good defender, and Jalen Brown basically just shut him down. That, that it, the Celtics that is, but It's almost <laughs> hard to imagine. Like I'm picturing the conversation in Houston where someone tries to tell Tillman Fertitia, we're going to trade for Fertitia? OB. Tillman Fertitia? Yeah. <laughs> um, How do you say it? Fertitta. Fertitta, okay. Uh, 
<laughs> Someone has to tell it for Tito. We're trading for OG, and and I just picture him like, how can I sell this to my fans? I don't even know who he is. I mean, OG is a beast. Yeah. O- defensively, OG just re- he has some of the strongest hands in the NBA. Just ripping the ball straight out of other dudes' hands. No, no I know he's he's great. Yeah. I, I loved him coming out of of Indiana. The selling point would be, I honestly, if you told me OG made an All Star team in the next two years, I wouldn't be shocked. I actually think that's definitely might might be likely. I think OG is getting much better offensively in terms of his handling. He can he's already basically a great three and D wing who's adding some stuff. Yeah, so he's rangy. He's yeah, strong. I think. The thing with OG is it's tough. I, it is easier to sell Siakam, but ultimately, because what is Siakam doing as your one star if you're the Rockets out in the West? And I know people say, oh, John Wall. Like, and John Wall looks fine. He's not a star anymore. Mm-hmm. If you Pascal Siakam's basically all you're guaranteeing yourself is either the 11th, a bad lottery odds or the 10th seat, 10th seat in the new play-in tournament, which is not what I think you want if you're the Rockets. Maybe these first two years... Just trading for OG, as he's not able to serve as an offensive fulcrum at very as much as Siakam can right now. You're allowing yourself to bottom out, but maybe having more long term value because OG in the future, say say the Rockets fall the go fall way down the lottery after they trade Harden, they get super luck, lucky and win this lottery and get Cade Cunningham is probably a su- future superstar, and now you have a great second or third piece who I think translates very well and OG and Anobi to play alongside him. And now you have this great team going forward. Okay, so okay. if you were if you were Toronto, you trade either Siakam yeah. or an OG package. But if you were Houston, you might not accept either. Well, it's it's very complicated thing through. Honestly, if I'm Toronto, I would have seriously looked into if this is. I, I think they'll get better if this goes really badly by like near the trade deadline. We could definitely see some. Lowry trade rumors in terms of the the Raptors finally wanting to blow it up as it's Laman rumored Masai Ujiri is considered before the Kawhi trade. So, Lowry and RG maybe. Yeah, so I mean, if you well, if you're trading for Harden, you're keeping Kyle Lowry because he's your best player, and you still want to have a championship roster roster left over to win with with Harden. So you're keeping Kyle Lowry, but um, yeah, I, I would need to know more more about. I mean, you need to be further into the season and know more about the Rockets situation and the Raptors situation to feel comfortable saying which one I prefer a trade for. If that makes sense. Like it's just very hard after six games where the Raptors have looked much, have not looked as good as they usually do. And the Rockets haven't played that much and our Harden's putting up unbelievable numbers. And honestly, the Rockets, while not looking great, they don't look that bad. So what about the, the heat and the Celtics? Do you think uh, either of them might try to become players for Harden? The thing about the Celtics is, well, the Celtics right now, Jason Tatum's doing early season Jason Tatum things, which is being bad. But um, he, this happens every year for him. He's going to be fine because that's what he does. He just, he starts off every season really weirdly for some reason with only settling for these step back jumpers and sidesteps when, I, I tweeted one last night, he took a sidestep over, I think, Jeremy Grant when the rim protector for the Pistons underneath the basket was Jaleel Okafor, and he decided not to try and drive on that which just blew my mind. Maybe but, he's um, spent so much time working on certain moves over the summer that he he's in the mode of trying them. I don't know. To, well, he's only 19, though, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, the big thing for the Celtics is that Jalen Brown, oh, my gosh. Jalen Brown is the most improved player front runner right now by a long shot. He He went from, like, a lot of nerds did not love him overall because his help defense has always been bad. He's tends to ball watch. He can't really distribute as a playmaker. And it was very much straight line driving. Now all of a sudden he's manipulating guys with these crafty dribble moves to get around them. And he's hitting like every jump shot he's taking. So Jalen Brown right now is killing it. Do you think he's played himself into the, I'm more valuable on my contract long-term than Harden would be. I don't want to do another Kyrie Irving. He leaves in a year and a half, two year situation. So the thing that's so fascinating about this is, if you remember, the reason the Celtics didn't trade for Kawhi is because they ultimately valued Jalen Brown long-term more than Kawhi for one year. So they've gone through this several times with Jalen Brown. I'm sure they had the discussion when trying Paul to pursue... George, maybe Butler, yeah. Trying to pursue Anthony Davis' trade a while back. They, they've clearly thought about it before. And that's the hard thing about Jalen Brown. Is that I think Kevin O'Connor p- pointed this out, that he gets better basically every year. Like, you look through his numbers, like, 
every year he just gets a little bit better and he's still he's still a very good player despite those previous flaws I discussed and he's looked like he's fixed a good number of those so it's really hard to tell where the Celtics are at as for the heat uh I mean 24 too <laughs> as for the heat I I mean it's such a generic take to have and I don't want to just be that guy but like it is hard to imagine James Harden in in a place like Miami with is known for its quality of clubs yeah, but Pat Pat Riley wouldn't hold back on that for that reason. Whose franchise is known for a very uh, militaristic-like approach. I'm not sure what to do. I also worry some about how, if you have Bam, Jimmy Butler, and James Harden, because I feel like especially Bam and Jimmy both want the ball a lot. You're I mean, right, Jimmy, if, you're, if you're Pat Riley, you're not worried about South Beach or usage. You're, you're just going to go do it if you can. Yeah. I. It's just so hard because the Heat who were very good last year, obviously, made the surprising run to the finals based on so much how much their movement-based, almost Golden State Warriors-like offense was, where, I mean, Jimmy Butler was kind of separate from that, but it was like the trifecta of Bam, Tyler Hero, and Duncan Robinson running around each other, just freaking other teams out. And James Harden has not played like that in seven years. It's been... It's been James Harden and the four other guys for seven years, which is a good offense, but it's not what the Heat ran so effectively. So you'd be changing so much of your identity if you did that. Yeah, but you have Eric Spolestra. Do you think he couldn't figure it out with those three? They'd probably win two titles right away. I, I'm not, and I'm not saying in, ter- in terms of value, yes. Like you obviously, I'm not one of those guys like you can't trade Tyler Hero for James. No, I'm not saying that. <laughs> like, Tyler Hero does not have enough value to be. But let's, not say, let's say the trade. market stalls and it's Hero, Duncan Robinson, Nunn, Iguodala, or Dragic, uh, and then all their assets or swaps that they might have in the distant future. I, again, I worry about the fit, but if it's just from a value perspective, I'd probably pull the trigger if I'm Miami. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> I'm still worried about, again, from a total of, yeah, James Harden's more valuable than all those guys. Uh, I would probably see if I could haggle it all to keep one of Robinson or Hero. And but, no, Houston would just laugh. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's a fair point. Because uh, then, so you're left then with like Harden, Jimmy Butler, Bam, Mo Harkless. Uh, who else? So you're saying Goron's gone? Well, it, they, it would have to be Iguodala and Olenek or Dragic, I think, to make the money work. Okay, then I'm haggling to keep Drogic just so I have another really awesome creator. Sure. Okay, yeah, if I could keep Drogic, then definitely, because, I mean, Drogic, Harden, Butler, Bam is a great four four players to start with. I mean, in terms of fit, I'd be worried, are we going to win two rings or three rings? I mean, Pat Pat Riley, when he had LeBron, Wade, and Bosh, he he filled in the rest of the pieces pretty well. I mean, even Mario Chalmers looked fine. Yes, and while Harden's, but none of those guys are LeBron still. Like we, we do underestimate the fact that for two those two years in 2012, 2013, LeBron was just. Well, it's hard to underestimate how great LeBron was. No, I'm not saying they're LeBron, but just compared to the rest of the league, that would be the the sole super team. Well, I I might still pick the Lakers to beat them if it was in a matchup, but you know that's just me. Hey, I'll give you odds on that. <laughs> All right, let's see what else do I got. Um, do you, yeah. So the landscape of the East, do you think the Sixers can make the finals as currently constructed? What do you think they would need to do to make, to do that? I want to I want to see them play against better teams before I go all in. I think they're playing very well right now and I'm encouraged still would not pick them to win the East. Mm-hmm. I know the Nets have struggled. I still probably think they're the best team at full strength. The buck, I would think the Nets and the Bucks are the two best teams in the East. Followed by teams like the Heat, Sixers, and Celtics. Uh, the Raptors have fallen out that about a little bit. It gotta get and every year I talk myself into Indiana being worse, and they're always not worse. So congrats Slow to them. There, yeah. And but the big thing in the East right now is that I mean they're four and two, but I mean people want to. So the two teams that are four and two right now are the Hawks and the Cavs. The Cavs currently have they passed the Sixers last night for best defense in the NBA at first after after setting. Back-to-back years of the worst defense ever. The tank is on board right now is very bizarre. You've got Toronto with the second pick. You've got a top-four pick going to Golden State again via Minnesota. 
So they, they might have a monster trade package if they wanted to deal, I don't know, Ubre, Weissman, and this this upcoming pick. Who the heck wants Ubre right now? I don't know, Phoenix? <laughs> you've, got, <laughs> you've got Dallas giving their pick to the Knicks at eight, so the Knicks could end up with two lottery picks. But the Knicks' own pick is not in the lottery. It's 16th. No, uh, yeah, the board's all weird. So of those two teams, the Cavs, well, I do think Darius, I'm really happy with how how much better Darius Garland has gotten, especially as a passer. I think he's good. Larry Nance Jr. remains a very fun defensive player to watch. Mm-hmm. They're, well, they're good. I feel like they're more just like maybe a play-in team good, ultimately. The Hawks, the Hawks offense, man, they, they actually took a dive because they had a really off night against the Cavs in a loss the other night, but... So they dropped down to second in offensive points per 100, but before that, they were scoring like 124 points per 100, which is just like shooting fireballs into the sun level of so hot. Are the Hawks actually good, and they're going to be like a top five think, team in the East? I think they're actually good. They, I might think they're closer to sixth or seventh still by a little bit, but I, if you tell me the Hawks finish with like the four seed, I'm not saying you're crazy at all. I think their offense right now, Trey is playing out of his mind. Bogdan Bogdanovich has helped so much. They just have such a good collection of capable offensive players. Now they haven't even gotten on Yeke Akongu back yet, who he'll help even more with defense and he'll love playing with Trey as a roller. If they, if they uh, were a five or a six seed, they are, they would be one of those teams where the coach needs to take an ambient the night before its series starts. The Hawks are, the Hawks are fun, man. I th- they're fun and they're good. I think the, the Hawks have probably, after some people were thinking it might happen last year, the Hawks have probably crossed that threshold of just being a good team. And what do you think of Portland? Portland is now just out of the lottery. Do you think they're going to actually be good, or they're going to sort of hover in this mediocrity land? I'll talk about that. That's a. I was just. I was not expecting a pivot to Portland right there. But um, uh, I mean, I it was. I'm partially biased now because I just watched that whole Warriors game this morning, and I think I tweeted it out. Um, I said multiple times out loud, "What on earth are they doing?" In reference to Enos Cantor and Carmelo Anthony's defense, mm. it was rough I, I don't know how nba coaches and all these people talk themselves into ns Cantor after we have like s- seven years of evidence like hey you put him in a pick and roll he's destroyed every well, time well he looked pretty good in the series where they went to the conference when they went to the conference finals like he was well, we getting did, out on yoke he had a couple of moments that were okay because people it's easier to look at a guy grabbing an offensive rebound than it is to watch him give up an- another drive and we forget, we tend to remember that offensive rebound over that play. Ennis Cantor is just not going to help. Your, it's For a bad defensive team, it's already not going to help. And, I mean, Carmelo doesn't look like Blake Griffin levels of old right now, but it's not looking great. Um, I don't know if you saw that Celtics-Pistons game the other day. I, lo- I loved Blake a few years ago. It's, his legs are definitely gone. Yeah. But um, getting back to Portland, uh, I mean, I was high on them coming into the year. I think I was a little too high on them, which might be too much of an early season reaction, but because I, I think I predicted them the four or five seed, and now I yeah, I'm thinking more of play in. I'm thinking them more of a play in team right now, but I still think they're fine. Dame is incredible. CJ, well, you, he relies a little bit too much on just making tough shots, which is hard to carry over for over the full course of a season. I still think he's good. Well, Yusuf Nurkic has dropped off a little on defense due to the injury. He's still an incredible passing hub as a big man, which really helps their team. Derek Jones Jr. looks like he's made some improvements, especially defensively. Always stand Robert Covington, you know. Uh, so I, I think that Portland, well, probably not as good as I thought. Eight last night. <laughs> well, well, I mean, it was one possession. But the thing is, thing, and that's, again, the thing. Like, we see Robert Covington kind of get spun around for a second. It looks bad. Like, oh, look at Rocco. And it's like... Yeah, I mean, yeah, Ennis Cantor didn't get spun around, but he was three feet behind Steph as he went in for the layup. Like, I prefer one over the other. So, yes, but, yes. um, so, uh, I, I definitely think Portland's probably a little worse than I expected. But, you know, I don't think this, this isn't like sound the alarm bells bad. All right. I think we're coming up on time. So, I want to say I appreciate you coming on. I love, uh, I love getting into the rapid fire takes. You've got a lot of great takes. And I think, um, Pretty much any Sixers fan who reads your work or listens to your pod will, will learn stuff, new stuff and think about it in a different way. I know you do a lot of reading beyond basketball that informs your opinions. If you want to plug anything, now's your chance. Uh, well, thanks, Dave, so much for having me on, and thanks for all the nice words. Uh, yeah, I've been a great writing for Liberty Ballers this past year. Uh, 
and now in a normal season after the day I started, the season got suspended due to COVID. Um, but uh, yeah, you can read all my work on Liberty Ballers uh, and listen to the Talking About podcast on the Liberty Ballers podcast feed. New show every Friday with me and Sean Kennedy. Um, we And you can follow me on Twitter at Dan underscore Olinger. If you're interested in other work of mine, I also am a managing editor at Insight and You, which is the SB Nation website covering Northwestern sports. Do a lot of stuff on their team. They've they've got some. They've got a surprisingly good basketball t- men's basketball team this year. So I've been writing a lot about them, and uh, I also uh, occasionally make some videos for a YouTube page, Eight in the Box Productions, with me and my friends have put together. And uh, I am also a contributor at the Step Back for Fansided. That's a lot. Very prolific, and uh, you made a great Moses Malone video. Yeah, the Moses video was still that took a long time, but it was a very fun project back in the summer. Uh, still love Moses Malone always. <laughs> you got to. All right, thanks so much, Dan. Appreciate you coming on. And thanks uh, for having me on, Dave. Your next piece of work, so you can motivate Tobias to learn something new. Uh, I'll be on it <laughs> <laughs> later.